0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: We start with some timely economic data. The July report on Empire Manufacturing from New York Turns positive for the first time since February, 17.2, a significant increase there. And we see new orders production and even employment turns slightly positive. So that is New York. What is happening in Pennsylvania and the second district of the Federal Reserve? Joining us now is Patrick Harker. He is the president of the Philadelphia Fed. Good morning to you, Pat, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I wanted to ask you uh, off the top how things are going in the Pennsylvania area. I know that the COVID case rate has risen a little bit. Uh, are you concerned that you fall back into the same uh, situation that we're seeing in the Sunbelt states?
2: So in the tri-state region, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware that we cover, uh, we have seen a little bit of an uptick uh, in the COVID cases. But uh, the governors have taken action to slow the, uh, the opening a little bit. So I'm not that concerned right now. I think the, generally the virus is pretty well controlled here. It's still a tragedy and there's still a lot of work to be done, but I'm not very worried at this point and for this region.
1: What's your view of the economics of the region? How hard have you been hit? How hard are you going to be?
2: So the region is manufacturing sector has bounced back. We saw our last report last month. Uh, we are seeing some uh, good news there. Uh, We are, particularly the city of Philadelphia itself, is predominantly eds and meds, and I'm concerned about those. Uh, I'm concerned not just about the large medical institutions, which have lost a lot of revenue because of elective procedures being curtailed or delayed, but also in the rural communities here. Those rural health systems have been hurt quite badly through this process.
1: What about um, the overall U.S. economy? Now that we've seen this flare up across much of the country, uh, are you revising your economic forecast yeah. or your outlook?
2: Yeah, so prior to this, we saw a pretty big hit in q uh, First half of this year, probably about 20% hit in GDP in the first half. We thought it would bounce back around 13% in the second half, ending around 6 7% uh, down in GDP for the year, and unemployment around 10%. We are revising it right now because with the – virus uh, surging in the South and Southwest of the country. Uh, We are concerned about that. I'm very concerned about that. So this is gonna be a slow recovery. Until we get the virus under control, we can't get the economy back to full throttle.
1: You mentioned Eds and Meds. The Eds part of it is your specialty. You uh, came up as an educator. How important is it to get the schools open? How important to the economy this fall?
2: Oh, it's very important, but we have to do it carefully. Uh, because we don't want to put people at risk. You start, for example, we know that uh, in the childcare business, uh, about half the childcare institutions, many of them are small uh, companies that are taking care of children. About half of them closed, and of the remaining ones, they lost about at least 50% capacity in remaining open. So it's just simply, if people can't find care for their children or be able to get their children to school, They're going to have a hard time working, and particularly in a knowledge economy where people's productivity is really their knowledge. If they're concerned about their children and that's weighing on their mind, it's human nature. They're going to be less productive. So I think it's very important, but we can't do it in a way that puts the children or the communities at risk.
1: Well, obviously, a lot of risks for the economy that don't seem to be reflected in equity prices. Are you concerned uh, about the level of stocks at this point and whether or not it's sustainable or we might be seeing a bubble that could pop and take the economy with it?
2: So the equity market, the stock market is a measure we look at, but I often remind myself it's not the real economy. So for me as a policymaker, I'm looking at the signals coming from the real economy, employment data, inflation data and so forth. That is my main concern right now.
1: Well, do you think there is any role for the Fed, though, in uh, perhaps controlling the rise of equities at this point?
2: At this point, we at the Fed had to we had to act early and aggressively to help stem the damage from this unprecedented pandemic. And we did that. And so that was job one. Now, as we start to climb out of this, hopefully sooner rather than later, we will address uh, other issues. But we had to act to secure the economy and help save as much of the economic infrastructure in the country as we could.
1: What more can the Fed do? Uh, Lel Brainerd suggested yesterday that you uh, let the economy run hot for a while and explicitly say you're going to let it uh, inflation rise. Uh, is that a strategy on the table for you?
2: So we've been saying for a long time that the 2% inflation goal is symmetric, which means we should overshoot it. We're having a difficult time doing that, like all developed economies. I'm supportive of the idea of letting inflation get above 2% before we take any action with respect to the Fed funds rate.
1: Do you think that uh, at this point the Fed can do a lot to stimulate the economy, or is it really up to Washington and the fiscal side?
2: I think there are things we can do. Our toolkit. We continue to lend, and we have that authority. But, yeah, I think the main issues that we're facing right now tend to be on the fiscal side of the House. I would agree with that.
1: What would you like to see? What, what's the most important thing to come out of Washington? What kind of aid? I know you don't want to mention a specific yeah. program, but what kind of thing, where's the economy weakest that needs help?
2: So I think a couple of things I worry about. And again, I don't want to tell Congress what to do, but there are things I worry about. One is a cliff effect of unemployment insurance. Yes, there is a need to get people back to work, and people want to go back to work. And But we can't just cut it off, because if we cut it off, people stop spending and that'll be a hit on the economy. Second, we're seeing the same kind of cliff effect with state and local governments. If they start laying off lots of people, we talk a lot about anchor institutions. Well, one of the big anchor institutions in our economy are state and local governments. So they need some help. Uh, So those are two that I think are really important. And the third that I worry about, and we're doing a lot of work at the Fed on, is small businesses, how to maintain the strength of small businesses, particularly for minority communities. The National Bureau of Economic Research recently put out a report saying it's about 40% of black owned small businesses have closed during this pandemic. This is not only decimating to those businesses, but to the communities they serve.
1: Well, what can the Fed do? You are banking supervisors. Yesterday in a speech, you were critical of the Paycheck Protection Program for uh, being focused more on bank relationships rather than need. Uh, how, How do you redesign that or where can the Fed act?
2: Well, I wouldn't say I was critical. What I was saying is that a lot of these micro enterprises, that is enterprises with less than five employees, and we have lots of those in Philadelphia and all around the country they don't have banking relationships because for a lot of reasons, they don't necessarily trust the institutions. That's the root problem. We have to solve that problem to get, I don't accept the fact that people don't have a banking relationship as the status quo and we should just accept it. We should work on that. We should bring people into the system so that they can have access to things like PPP programs and just have lower fees and better service to build their businesses.
1: Uh, before I let you go, I want to ask you how you're following the economy these days. We've had two better-than-expected jobs reports. Do you think we get the same thing for the month of July, and, and does it really matter?
2: It'll it will depend. Because of what's happening with resurgence of the, the virus, uh, I'm a little skeptical that we're going to see as good a jobs report, but we'll see. But it all comes down to, right now, controlling the virus. The health of the economy is dependent on the health of all of us. And until we get the virus under control, we're not going to get the economy back to where we all want it to be.
1: You mentioned uh, the fact that we're coming up on this fiscal cliff in July. In the end of September, we're going to have a lot of your uh, lending programs expire. Do you anticipate at this point they continue?
2: Potentially. It will depend on what the state of the economy is at that time.
1: All right. Thanks very much to Patrick Harker, the president of the Philadelphia Fed. Thanks for joining us today.
0: It is about Ireland and the bombshell announcement this morning on Apple Computer. What's wonderful about this is we have with us the finance minister of Ireland, Pascal Donahoe. And what is so interesting of Mr. Donahoe is his trek from Trinity College in Dublin to real corporate multinational work in the United Kingdom for Procter & Gamble years ago. He has lived the multinationalness of the United Kingdom, of the Republic of Ireland, indeed of Luxembourg in Europe. Finance Minister, we are thrilled to have you with us. Welcome to Bloomberg uh, Surveillance. Were you surprised by this huge, huge work? win for your nation and for Tim Cook and Cupertino?
3: Well, I always believed such an outcome was possible. And Ireland has been very clear now over many, many years that we do not make uh, special tax agreements with any company, big, small here in our country, and all taxpayers are treated equally. Uh, We really value the relationship that we have with an employer such as Apple like we evaluate the relationship that we have with all right. employers in Ireland. And we do not do special deals for them. And this ruling here today is a recognition of us.
0: Minister, you have lived this with p years ago. I want you to explain to those of continental Europe and frankly, those of you worldwide that appropriate tax policy for multinationals is not a theft from the general taxpayer.
3: Well, uh, I believe it's absolutely imperative that big companies are taxed effectively and they are taxed fairly. Um, And I also believe that for very big and very big digital companies, how we are going to tax them in the future is also going to change. Uh, But what was so important about this particular issue is an allegation was made that we were in some way treating Apple differently to other taxpayers that would be here in Ireland. This matter ultimately ended up in the general court of the European Union and it's been settled in the way that you've now described. So the message for me uh, as a finance minister here in Europe is that companies, whether they're from Europe, America or anywhere else in the world, have to be taxed effectively and fairly. And this was a really important issue for our tax code here in Ireland.
4: Moving from taxing to spending, there's a big question. You are the president. You are the head of a group of 19 finance ministers that will all get together this weekend for that European Commission meeting where they're going to be speaking about that key trillion dollar trillion euro budget, as well as a 750 euro uh, billion euro plan that has been proposed. How much pushback are you hearing from the frugal four on what has been proposed on bringing that fiscal stimulus down?
3: Yes, there is a diversity of debate in relation to this particular project within Europe and inside the European Union. But very broadly, the point I would make to you and to all your viewers across the world is this is a really signature example of Europe deepening its economic architecture and deepening and making stronger the foundations of the euro. And we are doing that to strengthen the ability of our own economies here in Europe to respond back to the economic shock of COVID. And because this is such a big project, of course there are different views in relation to us, but I do believe that within the European Union we'll reach agreement on the matter and the concerns that my colleagues and friends have among some countries regarding the scale of the fund and how this money can be used effectively and transparently. I believe with creativity and imagination in the coming days or maybe week or so, we'll find a way of reaching agreements.
0: Mr. Donahue, I want to go back to Apple. I think the sovereignty issue here, and it frankly has to do with the weekend meetings, but the sovereignty issue here is absolutely critical. Frankly, going back to Trinity College and Elizabeth I and the, the formation of liberty in Ireland, what this decision is really about, folding into all the different EU meetings that are yawners, is about sovereignty of nations to make their own laws. What does it mean for Brussels to see this victory by you today?
3: Well, actually, uh, I believe in the pooling of sovereignty and I believe in the sharing of sovereignty. I'm a passionate supporter of the European project. I'm a deep believer in the process of European integration that we have and the need to look at how we can strengthen it in the future. So I would actually regularly make the case here in Ireland and across Europe and indeed across the world that the European project, both economically and politically, is an extraordinary achievement that from my point of view, personally and politically, I want to protect, I want to secure us, and I want to grow within the future. And Commissioner Vestager um, is a commissioner that I have huge respect for, who I look forward to working with again in the future. Um, that said, there are always a number of particular areas in terms of how decisions are made and then how they're implemented that are always going to matter to individual nation states. And from our point of view, the reason this was so important is that it create the inference that we used our national sovereignty in some way to give favorable treatment to a company. That wasn't the case. It's been recognized by the ruling here this morning. But you know, I make all these, this case and I make that argument though, in the context of somebody who is a European politician, believes in the European Union and the sharing of sovereignty. But inside that architecture, countries still have roles, their duties, and their responsibilities. And that's why this hearing was so important.
0: Finance Minister, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pascal Donahoe
3: you. is the Irish
0: Finance Minister off of this extraordinary ruling out of Luxembourg on Apple uh, Computer. Daniel Tannenbaum is expert at what financial companies do given sanction, rules, and law. Changes. He's with Oliver Wyman after a distinguished career. He's got a fancy title of America's anti-financial crime leader. But mostly, what he does is go into rooms and say, "Okay, here are your options." Dan Tannenbaum, what are the options for American banking as they sit two blocks from the Mandarin Hotel in Hong Kong? Thanks,
5: Tom. It's uh, it's going to be a tough uh, morning or day for for U.S. banks operating in Hong Kong as they really think about what this could mean. I think it's really important to note, though, that sanctions weren't actually levied yesterday, but a framework was essentially established through the signing of the Hong Kong Autonomy Act. But if these sanctions are put forth um, like many think they could be, and these were very much a blunt instrument rather than a surgical use of sanctions in a very sensitive market, Um, It would be nearly impossible for a U.S. bank to be able to comply with U.S. sanctions and Chinese law simultaneously.
6: Well, Dan, this is the issue. I'm trying to understand the scale, the magnitude of the issue before us right now. And let's just think this out. Don't want to get you in trouble with any clients. Let's say there's a bank that starts with an H, ends with a C, they have a headquarters in London and a huge presence in (laughs) Hong Kong. Oh, let me see now,
0: I'm thinking. Don't name any banks, don't name any banks.
6: We're trying to keep Dan out of trouble. Dan, let's say that bank services a particular client that comes under these sanctions. What do they do?
5: I mean, we've talked about this on the show before. I mean, realistically, they're going to have to pick which regulatory regime can end up hurting them the most. Now, I do think there, there's some cause for for caution on all of this because. I mean, we're potentially a year away from actually seeing any real designations under this program. If you get into the nuts and bolts of what was signed yesterday, the administration have 90 days to identify targets worth designating. Then they have to inform Congress if any foreign banks carried out business with the aforementioned targets. um, And they have a year to do that. So you're talking potentially October of 2021 before you may begin to see any banking-related restrictions or more serious sanctions that get rolled out, potentially.
4: Dan, the sanctions haven't been levied yet. You made a point of that, and clearly, uh, this is just amping up the arsenal that President Trump potentially could have. Can you give a sense of why now? Because initially, uh, President Trump didn't have that strong of a reaction publicly to the incursions on Hong Kong's autonomy, and this came, uh, according to some people, sort of suddenly.
5: Well, I mean, it didn't, it didn't. Let's remember what he signed yesterday. It was a very, very bipartisan piece of legislation passed in both the House and Senate that forced the president's hand. He was essentially given no choice in a veto-proof majority to sign the legislation that came across his desk. So Congress is the one that acted and forced the administration to do something (laughs) They signed something, but haven't necessarily done anything yet. And I think the next step where the administration have to identify targets, that's the real sensitive piece here. Um, but I don't think it was necessarily suddenly. Um, it definitely was delayed for a few weeks. And I think the timing okay. with the U.K. announcement yesterday of, of excluding a, a certain tech company from from involvement in their 5G market um, was an you know, this has been a bad week in terms of okay, but Dan, Western China relations.
0: To John's correct, delicate questioning of what a given bank would do. Look at the margin. This stops marginal Hong Kong growth for the financial system of the West. Where do they go when they move from stopping the marginal growth of headcount over to we've got to adjust at the margin or completely and exit Hong Kong? Where would you suggest they go to?
5: I mean there's no I mean, this is still somewhat fresh, so I don't think there is a clear answer of where you'd go to. I know there's a lot of people in Singapore that are excited of what this could potentially mean for the further growth of Singapore as a financial services hub, um, which is a, a potentially a logical move from a regulatory standpoint and otherwise. Um, there's no clear answer. I don't think anyone is evacuating the Hong Kong market yet, and I think any, any moves in doing so could be viewed as premature depending on the business. But, I mean, this is what a lot of banks, similar to those that were looking at post-Brexit locations had to do, may need to begin spinning up our plans. If this escalates, do we stay in Hong Kong or do we actually have to potentially
0: move? I would point out, folks, the trip from Hong Kong to Singapore is almost four hours. You're on the plane and you're like, really? It's like literally New York to L.A. It's a lot farther away than anybody uh, imagines there. Dan, give us an update then. On what your counsel would be to banks right now
5: I mean I think it, it's keeping aware of what's happening the, the one missed opportunity in all of this was the u.s again went and alone set forth a unilateral sanctions package that there weren't other countries latching on to which does make it harder um, if you as you have these more significant business decisions that have to be made I think trying to establish what this could Potentially mean looking at the China response, which thus far has been focused similar to what it was last week With the designation of Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz for in response to Uyghur sanctions um, The Chinese response has been at least relatively measured given. I think they're aware that nothing has really happened yet But companies need to begin to prepare to understand how they can operate in both markets um, without you know completely running afoul of the other side. And there aren't any clear answers yet, given, you know, everyone's still decomposing this executive order and and the Autonomy Act and and what it could potentially mean.
6: Well, Dan, you've nailed it. I think the era of sitting on the fence for many of these companies who want their hand in both regions without really coming out and saying what they think about the situation, that's over, isn't it?
5: It it does seem like that's over. I think the relations between U.S. and China have only continued to worsen over the last few months. Um, And for banks that have grown their business in the APAC region, those that have significant business in the U.S., um, I don't know if they necessarily need to make any choices in the near term, but obviously this does pose a threat to the growth of the business um, going forward.
6: Dan Bump, great to catch up with you, sir. Oliver Wyman, partner, and America's anti-financial crimes head joining us on the latest out of <coughs> Hong Kong.
0: Bank of America has a franchise in research of trying to figure out the pulse of the buy side. John, at any time, this is an important conversation. And I would say in the history of Bank of America's research, there's never been a more important time in this pandemic than to figure out what the people scared stiff about the actual assumption or thinking.
6: Happy to say we can bring Jared Woodard in now, Bank of America Securities Head of a Research Investment Committee. Jared, always great to catch up with you, sir. Just how under-owned is that cyclical part of the market, and what will it take to get a durable rotation, one that lasts longer than 24 hours?
7: <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, look, the, 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 the big cyclical assets, the Europe, the, you know, the, the, the value stocks, the financials, these are some of the most hated you know, assets in the world. You have um, everyone crowded into essentially just one trade, which is which is tech. and uh, our contention is that on, on the one hand it's not quite as dangerous uh, at this moment uh, to own tech as, as it might might seem. Uh, for one thing, a lot of these stocks turn out to be quite more defensive than, than history would suggest. Uh, but at the same time we do see uh, one big risk to the very crowded positioning that, that everyone has in place and that's the risk of a genuine, um, economic rebound, not just a return to form uh, of the kind of secular stagnation, slow growth, low inflation, but in the, in the instance of a, of a genuine economic uplift caused maybe a huge surge in research and development, huge surge in corporate capex, the kind of things that can really boost productivity. If you get that kind of macro environment, something we've been writing about in recent months, then that would be a big risk to the crowded trade that everyone has in place.
0: Jared, you've got a wonderful double degree, philosophy and theology. I want you to go all Voltaire on me right now. And explain to me the panic in the institutional buy side over where the actuarial assumption is going. The math doesn't work.
7: It doesn't. It is a you know it is an existential risk. Maybe we talk about you know Heidegger and Sartre for a minute. But the, no, the 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 math doesn't work in the long term. I think that's why people are increasingly pushing you know out of treasuries, uh, out of out of duration, into more equity like uh, investments, into parts of the credit market. That have a little more risk in them because, the bottom line, they have to get some yield somewhere. That's a big theme for us lately, where you can go when yields are low. And uh, I think the good news is that, that the support from the Fed, the support from fiscal authorities has made some of those asset classes a little bit safer than they were. And uh, and you can buy alongside. We can talk about moral hazard. We can talk about long-term solvency issues out on the horizon. But I think for the moment, what we're seeing from a lot of investors, both in terms of uh, um, you know uh, households, institutions, everyone really, uh, are are looking increasingly at some of these alternative asset classes and riskier parts of the credit market because they do have to get a yield pickup somewhere.
4: Yeah, Jared, you could look at philosophy or you could look at there is no alternative and the bottom line. And the bottom line is, as you pointed out in your research, 77% of S&P 500 stocks are paying dividends that are higher than Treasury yields. How long can this subsist? How long can these companies keep such high dividends relative to benchmark borrowing costs without at least something giving and that gap compressing one way or another?
7: Well, historically, that gap has fallen when economic conditions recover, and I think that's a, a, a function, actually, more of, of treasury yields rising than of you know dividends uh, falling. Um, that's that's certainly happened in the last three or four you know big economic cycles. You saw that that ratio decline. But um, we think that you know one wrinkle in the in the in the, in the uh, story today is that it does seem really difficult to imagine how treasury yields could could rise sharply if, if for no other reason than because. Everyone expects the Fed to join other central banks in, in yield curve control, um, you know, maybe a little bit later rather than sooner. But um, if, it's not, uh, you know, if, if it's not, you know, if it's not, you know, yields rising, um, it, 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 it's the other thing. It's the, the prospect of increasing central <laughs> bank other issuance. Uh, <laughs> so issuance to fund, you know, expansive new investments, which would be really bullish for growth, but would also be painful for For treasury owners and for that reason that's why we say that you know it's all essentially one big trade either your long duration your long technology your long defensives in various ways or you're starting to look for avenues to bet on a meaningful you know economic rebound
4: jared there's also the other thing of companies cutting their dividends how concerned are you about the fact that we've seen companies cut their dividends the fastest pace on record so far this year with a likelihood that that's going to continue in some shape or form going forward
7: uh, it's, it's possible. Uh, we're not we're not overly concerned about that. I think at this moment, um, if for no other reason than because the the amount of of policy support that's come online has um, made uh, you know some of those cuts, I think, unnecessary. There's there's certainly pressure, political pressure, um, maybe some pressure from shareholders uh, to shore up balance sheets. Um, in our in our fund manager survey this month, you know, a lot of institutional investors continue to say. You know, increasing buybacks, increasing dividends was at the very bottom of their list of priorities, which is very understandable at this moment in the business cycle. But um, as, as a medium-term question and longer, we don't expect a lot of a lot of cuts on that account. In fact, one reason we're suggesting investors start to take a look, just take a peek at at European banks, for example, uh, maybe add to your watch list, Whoa. is because there is a prospect of of, of dividends coming. Hey, Jared, the lack of
6: conviction here, take a look, <laughs> take a peek. Now, let's pretend I'm a client and you call me up and you say, take a look, take a peek. What does that mean, Jared?
7: Well, I know I'm being cagey because they are, they are you know, some of the least owned assets in the world. Our contention is that there's a really great value opportunity there. If things continue to go well in Europe with yeah. regards to, you know, fiscal policy and, and then, you know, as, as maybe they get permission to pay dividends again, uh, that's a really profound opportunity.
6: Okay, Jared, we're going to leave it there. Always great to catch up with you. My best to the team. Jared Woodard there of Bank of America.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.